Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 12. I know it's, it's not 1 Peter, We're taking a, a one-week little pause. It's not unrelated to 1 Peter, but it's, it's not part of our series. So 1 Corinthians 12, uh, if you're in the blue Bibles in front of you, you can find it on page 1061. 1 Corinthians 12, and we are going to start in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another." If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Thanks be to God. Well, this morning I want to tell you something that you may not know about your pastor. There's a lot of things you probably don't know, but one thing, I love weddings. Now, I know what you're thinking right off the bat. You're saying, of course you do. There's always free cake. And you're not wrong. But while I won't deny that I enjoy cake as much as the next person, that's not why I love weddings. I love wedding ceremonies. And I have lots of favorite moments. I love the moment the door opens at the back. And I love that I get a front row seat often as the one doing the wedding. I love that moment the door opens and the bride and the groom see each other and lock eyes I love that moment when at the end they turn around together and they're ready to face their new life together for the first time. Both of those moments get me almost every time. But my absolute favorite moment is the one where you hear words like this. I take you to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. That moment, that exchanging of the vows, 
is the high point of the wedding day. Why do I say that? Because the commitments they make to each other in the vows is where the foundation of this new marriage is put in place. Everything else in the service either leads up to or flows out of that moment. That moment when the doors open and the bride walks down the aisle, she does that so that they can make this commitment to each other. And when they turn to face the congregation for the first time as Mr. and Mrs., the new life that they're starting together flows out of that commitment they just made to one another. They've made a commitment to care for each other come what may. And that commitment is more than just some kind of warm fuzzies, and it's more than just simply a cold contract. That commitment is a covenant. Pastor Tim Keller notes in his marriage book that a covenant creates a particular kind of bond, a relationship far more intimate and personal than a merely legal business relationship, yet at the same time it is far more durable, binding, and unconditional than one based on mere feeling and affection. A covenant relationship, he says, is a stunning blend of law and love. That's the beauty of a covenant. A covenant provides the rich soil of commitment where the roots of relationship can go down deep and the relationship can grow and flourish. All right, so you're thinking right now, rightly so, what does this have to do with our passage today or the sermon at hand? Well, this morning I want to spend some time together thinking about another kind of covenant, a church covenant or a membership covenant. I'll use those words interchangeably today. Now, this sermon, just truth and advertising here, is going to be pretty different from our typical sermon. Normally, our regular diet here is to pick a particular text and walk our way through it together. And this morning, we will be looking at 1 Corinthians, but we're not going to be focusing on any one passage. Instead, we're going to build off of what we saw last week in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. There, we talked about Christians living together in a beautiful community. And so today we want to follow that up. We got a glimpse of it last week, but we want to look today and answer the question, okay, so what helps create and preserve a community like that? Where do those things come from? And better yet, what holds them together? And what I want you to see this morning is that what holds a beautiful community like that together is a beautiful commitment. And a really helpful way to express that beautiful commitment is a church covenant. Now, one of the things that we're always looking to emphasize at Chapelwood is not just church membership, but meaningful membership. Meaning that we don't want membership to be seen as simply a name on a list. What we want it to be is, is an actively engaged relationship with one another. And as we shared at our last member meeting, one really significant way we are seeking to do that, to make membership even more meaningful, is by reintroducing a church covenant. I say reintroducing because historically this church was founded with a covenant and it was in use for some number of years until somewhere along the way it fell into disuse so that functionally we haven't had one for many, many years. So the elders are currently working on drafting a covenant that we will propose to the congregation in June. But before we get to that point, we thought it'd be helpful to do a bit of teaching on what is a church covenant. Some of you have grown up with them, some of you have never heard of them. So let's spend just one week together talking about what are they 
And why are they important? We've been talking about it a little bit, or at least talking around it in core class. So if you've been down there, you've heard some of these ideas. But this morning we wanted to say, okay, this is our best shot at getting the most of our church family together in one place. So let's have a conversation about what these church covenants are. Now I want to show my cards right up front. The reason that we're not in any one particular text is because there is no Bible verse stating that churches must or ought to use membership covenants. I can't take you to a particular passage and it says, Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt have church covenants. But in the same way, there were also no Bible verses telling us that husbands and wives ought to make vows to each other during a wedding. And yet my guess is that probably every Christian wedding, at least, you've ever attended in your lifetime has used vows. Why is that? It's because we rightly understand that those words of commitment are essential to establishing and preserving a marriage. There's something in the relationship that is weighty and wonderful that's expressed in those covenant vows. Again, this covenant commitment, it's the soil in which that relationship can grow and flourish. And I intentionally wanted to start our morning by looking at a marriage covenant rather than a church covenant because my guess is many of us are far more familiar with wedding vows than we are church covenants. And the fact is that people, we all learn about something new by way of analogy. That's the way you learn everything in your life is that your brain takes something that you know and it starts to compare this new thing to it and says, how is it like that? How is it not like that? So I wanted to give us a picture of a covenant and look at some ways and consider them. How is it similar and how is it different? A wedding vow and a church covenant. So let me start by pointing out one very obvious way. Church covenants and wedding vows are different. Okay, and we need to be clear on this. Unlike wedding vows, church covenants are not till death do us part. Okay, there's, this, there's no mandate that says for the rest of your life, once you join a church, you must remain there. While belonging to a church is not a commitment you should leave lightly or frivolously, we all know that circumstances change and people move. So a church covenant is not a commitment to belong to that church for the rest of your life. However, as Christians, I would say we should be committed to a local church for the rest of our lives. Well, that's one major way they're different. How are they the same? Well, there's lots of ways. I actually had to cut a lot of ways. I'd be happy to spell those out some other time, but I want to just point out two ways they're the same, and I want to do it from the text we read a little bit ago in 1 Corinthians 12. Two ways I think we're on the right track by comparing wedding vows and church covenants. The first thing I want you to see is that both in marriage and in the church, there is unity amidst diversity. There is this idea of multiple individuals being joined together to form one. Now we know that happens in marriage, the two become one, but did you notice that same idea all throughout our passage in 1 Corinthians 12? It's there all over, but look at verse 12 in particular. It says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So just like in marriage, we got this idea that a church is when many individual Christians come together in such a way that they're no longer just many. They're also one. In the same way that a husband and wife come together, they're still individuals. And yet there's this new thing created. Okay, so what holds the many together? If there's a 
many coming together to be one, what's holding them together? Well, just like in marriage, it's a commitment to care for each other. Look at verse 24 down in 1 Corinthians 12. It says, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. I love this verse. The more I studied it, the more I loved it. So here it's saying, God composed the body. That word composed, it's like he united. He took, he took different things and he put them together. He assembled the body and he did it intentionally. He did it this way, it says, and he did it for a purpose. You see that purpose statement there? What was the purpose? Twofold. One, that there would be no division. So God said, I'm going to put this body together in such a way that there's no division. But on the other hand, what is true? But that all the members would have the same care for one another. So God constructed his body, the church, in such a way so that members would have the same care for one another. Now here's what's interesting about that. I think that's enough right there, but the only other place Paul uses that word care in this letter is when he talks about the care, or sometimes translated concern, that husbands and wives have for each other back in chapter 7. He's using the same word because I think he's showing us there's a kind of care that members of a church and spouses share in common. Now, there's ways they're different. Hear me. But there's a way that they're the same. And what is it? What kind of care do they share in common? It's a committed care. In fact, at the center of our conversation this morning is that idea of commitment. You're going to hear that a lot. And I think this, this is why church membership and covenant membership in particular is so countercultural nowadays. Because we live in a time where all of us, but let's, let's be honest, statistics bear this out, especially younger people, have a fear of commitment. People are afraid to commit to a job, to a relationship, to a home. We're afraid to commit because, well, what if something better comes along? I read something recently that said that it used to be a fear of missing out is what drove us. We would just try to be everywhere at once because I didn't want to miss anything. But nowadays, it's actually a fear of a better offer that drives so many of our decisions. We don't want to make plans on Friday night because that sounds fun, but what if they ask me to do something too? Or what if, what if something comes along and I don't even know what? So there's this fear of commitment. We don't want to be locked into anything. And we think avoiding commitment provides us freedom. We can do whatever we want. We're not, we're not bogged down. We, we got our options wide open. And yet the reality is that true freedom in relationships is found only through commitment. And perhaps it's not a coincidence that we are also struggling with an epidemic of loneliness in our society. Could it be that perhaps our fear of commitment is the very thing that's keeping us from experiencing the kind of relationships and community that we're all desperately looking for? How much sweeter and better might our relationships be if they were rooted in the soil of covenant commitment? So this morning we're going to look at church covenants and we're going to answer three main questions. If you want to go ahead and throw those three questions up there. Really simple. What are they? Where did they come from? And why should we have one? Or another way to say that last one is, what do they do? And I'm just going to tell you right now, the first two are going to be really quick, and we'll spend most of our time on that last one. So what is a church covenant? We need to define our terms. And here's one helpful definition. 
A church covenant is a series of written pledges based on the Bible which church members voluntarily make to God and to one another regarding their basic moral and spiritual commitments and the practice of their faith. So in other words, it's a set of biblically-based promises that church members make to each other as to how they commit to living as Christians together. It's not something that's imposed upon anyone or something that you join. It's something that's saying we are all agreeing together that this is how we're going to live. In fact, a church covenant is the counterpart to a church's statement of faith. In a statement of faith, you have a summary of what all the members believe together. I talked about after our first song, that's kind of like a mini statement of faith. It's declaring, this is what we believe about God together. We can all sing that song because we all believe those words are true. This is our God. And so just like a statement of faith says what a church believes together, a covenant, on the other hand, says, okay, and because we all believe that, here's how we're going to live together. So those are the two documents that are at the heart of every local church. The statement says, what do we believe together? And a covenant says, and how do we want to live that out together? And these promises and commitments that we are making in a covenant, you need to hear that they are biblically based. These are not something added on to what scripture requires. It's not as though we look at the Bible and say, those are good, but you know what? There's a few they left out. And so we're tacking them on. Instead, covenants, what they do is they take all the instruction of the New Testament, all the places we see, like 1 Peter chapter 3 or 1 Corinthians 12, and there's many, many more. And they take all those, they summarize and organize what the Bible teaches about how we are to live together. So covenants are a tool to help us know and follow how the New Testament calls us to live as a church. Okay, so let me just recap that one. What is a church or membership covenant? It's a set of biblically-based commitments members make to one another about how they will live together as a church. That's what it is. Okay, now second question is, well, where did they come from? I'm not going to give you a long history lesson here, but I think it's important that you know church covenants are not a new thing. This is not a fad or a trend. This is a historically rooted thing. The first place we see covenants is we see them all over our Bibles, right? In fact, covenants are the primary ways our God relates to his people throughout Scripture. You see covenants he makes with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and David. But in your Bible, you also see covenants made between people, not just between God and people, but with one another. Covenants were a way to make formal, relationship-based commitments with one another. Now, fast forward, even when you get to the early church, we have records of Christians gathering together for worship and reciting an oath or a covenant together before they take the Lord's Supper. So we know that there was something going on even then. But when they really begin to take root, where you really want to, where you start to see church covenants prominently is in the 15 and 1600s. You've got several different groups, including the English separatists, congregationalists, and Baptists, who saw these covenants as essential to the life of their church communities. In fact, as far back as 1609, we have Baptist documents that define the church as a communion of saints joined together by covenant with God and with each other. That's 1609. So it's, it's been more than a few years here. 
In fact, we see the same thing in Baptist documents down through the ages, from 1609 to the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, and even today, in our current statement of faith, the one that's used by all Southern Baptist churches, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says this, a New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. There it is in our own statement of faith. So I hope you know that one reason that we think it's really important to reintroduce a church covenant is so that we can be consistent with our own stated beliefs. Like we have it on paper saying we believe that's what a church is, but functionally we're not living it out. And we think that's not how we should be as a church. We want how we live to match what we believe. So that's, where, that's a brief look at where they came from. But what I want to spend most of our time together is on this question. You can throw up the next one. What do church covenants do? And I'm going to go through six things fairly quickly about what a church covenant does. I'll tell them to you now and then we'll go through them. A church covenant distinguishes our community. It defines expectations. It declares and deepens our commitment. It disciples us in how to live. It defends us. And ultimately, it drives us back to the gospel. Okay, so let's look at those. First, it distinguishes our community. <clears throat> what I mean by that is that a church covenant helps us clearly answer the question, who are we? Right? When you say, like, we are Chapelwood Baptist Church. Well, who is that? When we talk about Chapelwood, who are the names that's, that are included in that? See, like every other local church, Chapelwood is, is not just an institution. It's not merely an organization. It's not a nameless, faceless entity that has a building and puts on events on Sunday mornings and offers programming for whoever wants to come. A local church is also not just a group of anyone who shows up for service now and then. Even people who say, in answer to the question, where do you go to church? Say, oh, I go to Chapelwood. That doesn't make you Chapelwood. See, a local church is a particular group of Christians in a particular place who are committed to one another by covenant. And by affirming a covenant together, it makes our commitment to one another formal. It helps us know exactly who are the people that I'm committed to care for. When somebody new walks through the door, am I instantly committed to care for them in the same way as somebody I've known for a decade? No, there's, there's something else that drives our knowledge of who we're committed to, and that's a covenant. See, all throughout the New Testament, there's always this clear demarcation between those who are in the covenant community and those who are outside. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Colossians, he tells us, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Galatians 6.10 tells us, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So it begs the question, how do I know who's an insider and an outsider? How do I know who belongs to the household of faith? Well, an answer is, it's the ones you've covenanted with. They're a part of the same covenant community. See, what a covenant does is it particularizes the one another commands we find in the New Testament. So when you're reading your Bible and you come across things that say things like, be tenderhearted to one another, be patient with one another, forgive one another, show hospitality to one another, and we ask the question, well, who's that talking about? 
The covenant puts names and faces to those commands. So I say, I know exactly who one another is. And it helps everyone, both those inside and those outside the church, know who we are. It distinguishes our community by defining who we've committed to care for. Secondly, a church covenant helps define expectations. This is such a valuable thing in relationships. If you're married, you know this. If you have friends, you know this. How many conflicts have you been a part of where the tension boiled down to the fact that you had different expectations? That you thought someone would do one thing or that they ought to do one thing, but they were on a different page and they thought, no, no, this is what's expected of me. Or maybe they assumed that you would do this, but you thought, no, no, I shouldn't have to do that. And so you both end up getting upset. Why? Because you had different expectations. And churches are no different. People come into church membership with wildly different assumptions about what being a church member means. So what a covenant does is it helps avoid and cut through that confusion by clearly defining expectations for all of us. And this is really helpful in both directions of the relationship. See, on one hand, first it defines my commitment to others. So it helps me as a church member know exactly what it is I'm signing up for when I join a church. I'm telling others what they can expect from me. It says, I'm committing myself to things like being present when we gather for worship. Things like, I commit to pray for you, to care for you, to forgive you. And without a covenant, our commitment as church members is left somewhat vague and implicit. Yes, I'm committed to you. What does that mean? I mean, you know, it means, I don't know, but I'm committed to you. But a covenant helps spell it out for us. So it's unambiguous, explicit, and concrete. But the definition works the other way too, right? It not only helps me know what I'm committed to do for you, it also assures me and helps me depend and rest in your commitment to me. It spells out what I can depend on my fellow church members for. So I can take heart when I'm going through hard things. I can take heart knowing that you're committed to warning me when I start to wander. I can take heart knowing that you're committed to encouraging me in my faith. You're committed to weeping with me when I have to weep. What gives me confidence that you'll forgive me when I sin against you and I come to you asking for forgiveness? What gives me the hope that I, I know they'll forgive me? because you've covenanted to do that. A covenant helps us know what church members should expect of each other. This way we can all be on the same page and have confidence in what we can expect from one another because the covenant defines our expectations. Third, a covenant declares and deepens our commitment to one another. We all know that there's something significant that happens when a person makes vows and puts a ring on their spouse's finger. In fact, I would argue you don't even have to go to that level. Even the people get skittish about applying labels to relationships. There's something about expressing a new level of commitment that changes the relationship. When we put that ring on someone's finger, it declares loudly and clearly to the other person, listen, I'm committed to you. I'm in this with you for better or for worse. We're showing them, like, so they're not just, I think they get it. I think they know that. We're saying, I don't want you to be confused. I'm declaring to you, I am committed to you. 
But a covenant doesn't only declare our commitment. There's something about covenanting together that actually also deepens our commitment to each other. It doesn't just make the commitment known, it makes it more meaningful. We are no longer simply fellow Christians who happen to show up at the same place on Sundays. We are now bound to each other in the covenant community of a local church. Now we're family. And now we are committed to living like that's real. So a covenant provides a depth of commitment that helps us know that these people are going to be there with us no matter what. So that means we can actually start to let down our walls with each other. Why? Because we've got a commitment behind it. Because of that commitment, we can be honest with one another about our sins and our struggles and not be afraid that they're going to run away because they don't want to be any part of our mess. That commitment means we can have that hard conversation. It means we can take that risky first step of reconciliation. And we can ask the question that takes the conversation past the safety of small talk and down into things that really matter. This deeper commitment that a covenant offers also affects our treatment of each other. Because the fact is, it's much easier to overlook an offense in love or to bear with one another when we know that we're going to be with each other. If I know that whatever we, you and I go through today, next Sunday we're both going to be here and we're still going to be with each other. On the other hand, it's easier to complain about or just go off on someone who you don't think, I'll never see them again. There's no bond, there's no commitment there that keeps you from saying the things you shouldn't. But when you're fighting to maintain unity and protect relationships with people you're in covenant with, you're more careful with your words. We saw in 1 Corinthians 12, 25 that all members are to have the same care for one another. And a covenant is how we declare and deepen that commitment to care. Now at this point, if not earlier, someone might say, yeah, I'm, I'm tracking with you, but do you really need to have a covenant to care for each other like this? The answer is, of course not. You don't. But if you really are committed to caring for fellow members like this, the question is, why wouldn't you demonstrate that by covenanting? It's like the boyfriend that says he's committed to a relationship, but he just doesn't want to mess things up by making it formal and getting married. You know, we got a good thing going. I, yeah, I'm in it. Don't you worry about that. Why, let's not mess up a good thing by putting labels on it and like putting a piece of paper. And in core class, I think you heard a quote this morning from Tim Keller saying, what that person, what that boyfriend really means is, I, I love you, I just don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. To say I don't need a piece of paper to love you is basically to say my love for you has not yet reached the marriage level and in the same way someone who doesn't want to covenant with their church is essentially saying oh no 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 i'm in i love i love the church i'm committed but my commitment to you is just it's not a membership level yet i'm not ready to give myself to others that thoroughly in other words i'm not ready to be committed to care for other christians the way the bible calls us to which takes us to number four and that a membership covenant disciples us in how we are to live together as Christians. See, covenants are not meant to be stale documents buried on a shelf, covered in dust, and forgotten. They are meant to be actively used and reflected on. 
They are great tools to help us teach how we should live as followers of Jesus. Remember I said earlier, a covenant summarizes what the Bible teaches us a community of Christians should look like as we follow Jesus together. It takes the passages like Ephesians 4 and Hebrews 10 and Romans 12 and, and uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and so many others and it gives us a summary that we can get our hands around because this is a lot. And in the same way that you don't say, well, what do you believe? Well, I believe the Bible. It's like, yes, but you still have a statement of faith that summarizes and puts it more succinctly so you can get your hands around and say, okay, we are on the same page because we believe these core things. A covenant takes everything the New Testament is teaching about what a church should be like and it summarizes it and synthesizes it in a way that we can get our hands around and say, that's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to live. It doesn't include everything the New Testament says, but it provides a clear and helpful summary that we can use to disciple each other. And the fact that we can use it to sit down and say like, all right, let's, let's look together at how you and I should live together as fellow church members. Friends, that makes it the covenant a fantastic Great Commission resource because it helps us teach one another to obey all that Jesus commanded us. And it also helps us obey Colossians 3.16, which calls us to teach and admonish one another. So it's one more tool in our tool belts as how can I help one another grow? Well, how can we learn how we should live with one another? Let's look at the covenant together. It takes all the doctrine that we believe together and makes it practical. It answers that question. Okay, when a group of Christians believes these things together, what does it look like when they actually do life together? Covenants disciple us in how to live together as a beautiful community. Fifth, covenants defend us. Two quick ways I see that covenants defend us. First, they defend us from division and fighting within the church. Because covenants give clear instruction and commitments on how you and I will handle conflicts with one another. We commit to do things like loving each other, to being patient and kind, being slow to take offense, quick to forgive, always ready for reconciliation. Covenants provide help when things get hard in relationships. In fact, I'd argue that covenants are even more critical in the hard times. That's why when people make wedding vows, there's a reason that those promises are for times when things are for worse, for poorer, and in sickness. It's not just I promise to have and to hold, to love and to cherish when things are for the better, when you're healthy. When we've got a lot of money. It says, when those bad times come, you need to know that I'm committed to you. In fact, to illustrate that, <clears throat> Andrew Peterson has a beautiful song about marriage and how much joy is found in a relationship that is also filled with challenges. He calls it dancing in the minefields. The whole thing is really good, and I, I commend it to you, but I want you to hear the chorus. Here's what he says in a chorus. And we're dancing in the minefields. We're sailing in the storms. This is harder than we dreamed, but I believe that's what the promise is for. 
And I love those last two lines because they're true in marriage and they're true in the church membership. He says, this is harder than we dreamed. Why is it so hard? Why would church membership be hard? Why would marriage be hard? It's because you and I are sinners. It's hard to lay down our lives and our wants and our preferences for someone else. It's hard to put others ahead of myself. It's hard to open ourselves up to getting hurt. It's hard to seek reconciliation when, if we're honest, part of us wants to seek revenge. It's hard to be close enough to someone where they know us, warts and all, and we know them, warts and all, and yet we still love each other deeply. Being a church member is harder than we dreamed. But I believe that's what the promise is for. What promise? The covenant. The promises that we make with each other that come what may, we'll be there with each other and for each other. That we will keep caring even when it's hard. That's what the covenant is for. So yes, we will pass through minefields of potential conflict and struggles and hurt feelings, but we can happily dance through those minefields because we have the promise of the covenant to keep us together. That's one way they defend us. The second way covenants defend us are that they guard us from wandering away from Jesus. Covenanting gives each other permission to press into each other's lives for our good. To encourage us when we're discouraged. To come after us when we start to stray. To ask hard questions. To speak the truth in love. Even to discipline us when necessary. Covenants help us watch over one another in love by calling us to live out passages like Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or James 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Those are powerful passages. And did you catch that each one of them used family language? Brothers, brothers, brothers. He's saying this is how families look out for one another. When we commit to live this way together, covenants defend us against both warring with each other and wandering from the faith. And that brings us to one final thing covenants do. Covenants drive us back to the gospel. <clears throat> The covenant we make with one another is meant to remind us that our God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Why is he a covenant-making God? Because our God is a God of commitment. In fact, the story of the Bible is how God, in love, committed himself to a particular people. He made that commitment explicit by making covenants with them all throughout the Old Testament. But he also kept promising that there was a better covenant coming. In Jeremiah 31, God tells us what he will commit to do. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And if that weren't enough, a chapter later in Jeremiah 32, he tacks this on. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Friends, just let the staggering nature of those promises wash over you. That is what God has committed to do for you. And he's bound himself to keeping those promises by making a covenant. And he sealed that covenant with the blood of his own son. Jesus is the way the new covenant becomes yours and mine. He died so that by our faith in him, we might belong to the new covenant community of God. Because of Jesus, our sins are forgiven and remembered no more. Because of Jesus, we can know God and have his law written on our hearts. Because of Jesus, God has made us his people and given us one heart and one way. And because of Jesus, God will never turn away from doing good to us, but will rejoice in doing good to us with all his heart. And how do we know those promises are ours? Because as we'll celebrate in a moment, as Jesus was getting ready to die, he lifted up a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Friends, the cross is where God sealed the covenant and showed his commitment to us. Friends, your God, if you are in Christ, is so committed to care for you that he gave his own son. What will he not do for you? He will always keep his commitment to you. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we now belong to the new covenant people of God. Jesus died to make us one, to give us a family who loves each other like he loved us, to make us a people who are committed to care for each other and who show that commitment by covenanting together. So let me go ahead and invite the servers to come forward as we'll transition now to taking the supper together. And what a beautiful, beautiful thing this is. Throughout the Bible, whenever a covenant was renewed, they would eat a meal together as a, shine, as a sign and a symbol of saying, hey, that relationship that was established between us, it's still strong. It's still good. We are at peace. There is, there is unity between us. And so God has given his new covenant people a new covenant meal. And as often as we as his new covenant people come together to celebrate this, we rehearse and renew that covenant saying, yes, I belong to Jesus. I'm a part of this people, not because I've been good enough, not because I've been here long enough, but only because Jesus died in my place for my sins. And by faith in him, he says, come. Come, you sinners.
Come and feast on my finished work. So in a moment, we're going to sing a song celebrating the work of Jesus. And I invite you at that time to come forward when you're ready to either of these lines. And you can receive the elements and go back to your seats where we will hold them as we sing the song together. And we will take them together at the end. And as you take them, I encourage you just to reflect on the fact not only that Jesus has made you his, but he's made you a part of a people. And thank God as you look around that this is a part of your new covenant family. So let me pray, and then the servers can come and and take the elements. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you this morning that you are a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. You do not leave your commitment to us abstract or vague, but you made specific promises that you hold yourself to. You sealed that covenant with the body and blood of your son. And so now we can come to this table in remembrance of that act of love and that act demonstrating your commitment to us and your love for us. Lord, you showed your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so that now as we come to this table, we come as beloved children, those who've been adopted, who've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to a living hope to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And that's an inheritance that we know we will share with those with whom we feast this morning. So God, would you give us fresh joy in our hearts, not only at our own salvation, but also in the salvation of our brothers and sisters and the fact that you have called us to a people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Once we were not a people, and now we are your people. So as your people, we thank you and we come in joyful celebration of all that Jesus has done on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen.